Welcome to 49. My name is Jed Devermont. I am the director of the Africa program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council. And I'm Nicole Willette. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundations. And like Judd, I served at the National Security Council. I also served at the U.S. State Department and the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, all with a focus on Africa. This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards Sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time. This episode is about Ghana. And we are joined by Kwese Prempe, Executive Director of Ghana Center for Democratic Development, CDD Ghana. Nicole, can you give us the top lines of U.S. policy towards Ghana? Sure thing. The United States opened a consulate in the Gold Coast colony during World War II because Accra was a landing point for ferrying aircraft across the Atlantic. When the country, renamed Ghana, became independent in 1957, Vice President Nixon attended the celebrations. There's an oft-told story, perhaps apocryphal, that he asked a reveler, how does it feel to be free? And the reply was, I wouldn't know. I'm from Alabama. Relations with Kwame Nkrumah, who had studied at Lincoln University in Pennsylvania, were often acrimonious. Eisenhower and Nkrumah had positive interactions at the White House, but disagreements over the Congo soured relations. Eisenhower was displeased with Nkrumah's support for Congolese leader Patrice Lumumba and blanched at the role the Russians were playing in transporting Ghanaian troops to the Congo. Kennedy tried to improve ties, despite growing opposition to Ghana within the U.S. bureaucracy. The big debate, which started in the Eisenhower administration, was whether the U.S. would finance the Volta River project. Kennedy believed that supporting the project would keep Nkrumah in the West camp and temper his anti-American outbursts. JFK overruled his brother, Robert F. Kennedy, and the other cabinet members deciding it was worth the risk. The president's decision, however, didn't turn the tide, and Nkrumah did not let up on his attacks in the West. The relationship became even cooler, and Nkrumah continued to flirt with the USSR and China. His economic policies and authoritarian rule alienated much of Ghanaian society, including the military, which overthrew him in February 1966. U.S. relations with the incoming military junta were much more positive, even though the country's new leaders didn't break ties with the Soviets. In 1969, Kofi Busia was elected as the country's civilian prime minister. Ghana's ceremonial president, named a year later, was Edward Akufo Addo, who is the father of Ghana's current president. In the early 1970s, the United States worked to address the country's crippling debt a hangover from Nkrumah's tenure, and promote structural economic reforms. There was a robust USAID presence working on public health, manufacturing, and light industry. Much of this assistance was put on hold when Colonel Achempong seized power. In what was called the Amenities Coup, the military regime rejected the economic reforms imposed on Ghana by the international community. Achempong reversed devaluation and repudiated the debt. It was difficult to restore trust between the U.S. and the Ghanaian government, Even U.S. Ambassador Shirley Temple Black, yep, that Shirley Temple, couldn't convince the Ghanaians to welcome Secretary Kissinger to Accra. Kissinger saw it as, quote, a slap in the face. In 1979, Flight Lieutenant Jerry Rawlings seized power and executed two of his military predecessors. While Rawlings supported a swift transition to civilian rule within the year, it didn't last long. He grabbed the reins of power again in 1981, and Ghanaian-U.S. relations markedly deteriorated. 
Rawlings aligned himself with Libya, Cuba, and the Soviet Union, and other revolutionary governments in Africa. A Ghanaian intelligence officer had a romantic relationship with a CIA officer, inducing her to commit espionage. There was an overall reduction of the U.S. presence. Over time, though, Rawlings started to liberalize the economy and move the country towards elections. He sent peacekeepers to Liberia in response to the Civil War, and in 1989, Rawlings and President George H.W. Bush were in Japan attending Emperor Hirohito's funeral. Rawlings saw that President Bush was shivering cold, and he offered him a scarf. Bush said, quote, it felt really good. It saved my life because it was a bitterly cold day. It started what Bush called scarf diplomacy, where the two heads of state sent each other small mementos, such as cufflinks and kente cloth. In 2000, opposition leader John Kufour was elected president, with Rawlings stepping down in 2001. Since then, there has been regular alternation of power between the country's two main parties. Presidents Clinton, Bush, and Obama have visited Ghana, and they welcomed their counterparts to the White House. Ghana is now consistently one of the closest partners of the United States in Africa. So Judd, do you want to talk more about a major U.S. success or policy failure? Yeah, I think I have two successes from two different periods that I want to highlight. First, under Rawlings, uh, in those that early 80s period where relationships were really rough, if you read a lot of the memoirs and the oral histories from our ambassadors, we continued to engage in this country despite the challenges. In fact, one ambassador created a report card that he sent internally back to the State Department to sort of objectively measure how they were doing in terms of their goals so that even though when relationships got emotional or rough, they had a sort of a shared view on it. I think that kept the relationship cordial enough so that when relations did warm, they were in a much better place. And then the second phase is really the kinds of ways in which we have the U.S. government engaged with the Ghanaian governments at such a high level and showing such respect and really honor. So President Clinton went to Ghana, did a huge speech at uh, the Black Star Stadium. President Obama went to Ghana and spoke to the parliament. Actually, a speaker of the House, Nancy Pelosi, did the same. And then I remember this when I was in government. President uh, Otta Mills came to Washington and we made it an official visit, which is different than a, a working visit. And he stayed at the Blair House. You know, this is something that we don't accord to African governments as often as they should or you think they would. So I think there's these two examples of how to deal with a government where you're not in good their good graces and then how to really show that kind of respect when the relationship is warm and effective and close. So, Kwesi, what should the Biden administration's strategy towards Ghana be? Ghana has uh, often, if not always, occupied a position or place in American policy or strategy toward Africa that is really out of proportion uh, to our size as a country, uh, a fairly small country. But I believe this has something to do with Ghana's role or maybe reputation as a bellwether of sorts in the region. In the past, it was for our proneness to military coups and uh, associated economic stagnation. But I think since the 1990s and uh, more accurately since the early 2000s, it's been for our example as a successful case of steady, stable, democratic transition and peaceful turnover in government between our two main rival parties. So for the Biden administration, in my view, I think safeguarding Ghana's democracy, as well as Ghana's example as a model of democracy in the region, against this regional trend of democratic backsliding, should, in my view, be a critical driver of U.S. policy 
If Ghana begins to slide <laughs> like the rest of the region, then it would be a big game changer. And I think that it's important to hold the line and make sure that Ghana doesn't go the way of the whole neighborhood. And that means for me, continuing to provide democratic assistance, which US has actually been very good with since our transition in the 1990s, both in the form of election support, particularly citizen-led election observation, but also increasingly for accountable governance. And the latter because when, you know, I'm going back to Afrobarometer findings, the findings from Afrobarometer consistently show that in Ghana, as elsewhere on the continent, citizens overwhelmingly support and, and they do prefer democratic government, but at the same time are disappointed with the performance of governments that they elect. For me, safeguarding Ghana's democracy and democratic credentials in the region would mean helping Ghana deal with this problem of a democracy that is not seen to be delivering as much in terms of democratic dividend, mostly of the economic kind. So Nicole, if you were back at the White House or at state, how do you hold the line? How do you make sure that people in Ghana feel like democracy is working for them? The first thing is that you pay attention, right? I think one of the things that Kwesi just underscored for us is the fact that you have the beginning of this real slide, right? And as an interagency in the United States, we have a tendency to wait until we're at full-blown crisis or absolute perfection in order to engage fully. So it wasn't an accident, right, that President Obama went to Ghana uh, in his first term as his first trip to Africa. And that's where he sort of famously said that Africa doesn't need strong men, it needs uh, strong institutions. You know, this is, of course, the moment where, in fact, the interagency should be paying the most attention. The Afrobarometer statistics that Kwesi just cited, where there's still great belief in democracy as the format of government that is going to deliver the most for people, but this increasing disappointment with what is actually showing up in people's homes and their houses and their bank accounts. Economic development, right, so that you do have youth that have a sense of real opportunity staying in Ghana, that they can grow their talents in their country. And of course, the importance of the peace and stability element in West Africa. So this is not a hard one necessarily, right? The tools are there, the expertise is there, the relationships are there to be able to do it. The focus needs to be the interagency coming together. And I will just say as a last comment, we do know again that the Democracy Summit will be held this December, mostly virtually, but Ghana, and I, I suspect this is very much on the list, but Ghana is a country where is absolutely ripe for engagement around the Democracy Summit to both still be held up as this critical democratic model in the country, but to make sure that the United States interagency is getting something out of that, right? So increased, redoubled commitments to the principles of democratic government. This is really a moment to engage. Kwesi, do you have one big idea, even a radical one, to put on the table that might make a dent in the relationship between the United States and Ghana? I think that making democracy the economically preferred option for Africa is something that I think we should we should put on the table. In a way, this is uh, you know like a playback of the old 1960s democracy or development debate. I mean, and we of I mean, small D Democrats know it is a false dichotomy that democracy and development are not antithetical to each other, but Many, many do not feel that, right? And however we might feel about it, the debate has resurfaced, especially as African governments 
democratic governments have struggled to deliver economic dividends. And I think this issue is made all the more topical, in fact, more urgent now by the big emergence of China in Africa as well. So we can no longer afford, I think, to decouple democracy from development or sell democracy as a political idea and then attend to economic development almost as a separate kind of agenda, right? I think so the coupling of the two in a way that makes democracy the economically competitive and preferred option for Africa is something that I think we should put on the table. I just want to foot stomp that Akufo Otto has not been engaged since he became president by our presidents. The Democracy Summit is a great opportunity to do that, but I do think Ghana's importance requires that kind of engagement so we can push the issues that we've talked about today. Your point, Kwesi, about China is so good. Ghanaian civil society is really looking very closely at what China does, whether it's the bauxite deals or it's around the fishing industry. And my view is always that China tends to do well in democracies and autocracies in Africa, but it's in democracies where there's transparency and where civil society calls out what they see as malign influence or discrimination. And so investing in Ghana's civil society has this twofold benefit of democracy, but also making sure that they're getting the right deals from their foreign partners. Last question, Kwesi, Ghanaian folktales often feature Anansi the spider. He's like the original trickster. So can you talk a little bit about his place in storytelling in Ghana and society? Nancy was the spider who would always live and play by his wits and manage to you know, really survive that way, play one animal against the other, one predator against the other, take advantage of them, do all kinds of tricks to get by. So I think, you know, there's this modern uh, contemporary reflection on Anansi, especially by Ghanaian scholars and uh, literature and other, other, even governance scholars who are thinking, we have certain things within our culture that probably make it difficult for us to fight corruption. And the celebration of Anansi, the cunning guy who lives by his wits, and who basically takes advantage of the characters that he is involved with might explain. So is it is it is it is it part of the Ghanaian character, the cultural character? Well, I think it was more descriptive of human nature than something that was a, like a moral endorsement of this particular behavior. Well, I can tell you that Anansi has definitely become one cross-cultural spider because my children, especially my seven-year-old daughter, is currently obsessed with listening to a Spotify story cast called uh, African Folktales. And her very favorite one is Anansi the spider. So I really need that spider to like keep it together and show this child how it exists in the world. I think we're going to put a link to that Spotify African Folktales uh, in the podcast. Yes. Well, that's the show. Please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks.